This is unstructured. Hey everybody, today is an amazing honor I have with us today, Austin Peterson. Now you guys may recognize him. He was the runner-up libertarian candidate to Gary Aleppo Johnson in 2016, and he's now running for Senate in Missouri. I understand the polls are looking pretty good for you right now. Is that correct? Yeah, thanks for asking. Actually, um, in a head-to-head election versus um, myself versus Claire McCaskill, uh, we are 16 points ahead of old Claire Bear. And um, we do really well in a general, not just with the general uh, election, Missouri voters, but we actually do really well with women. Uh, we beat her by 19 points. Wow. And with young people, we beat her by 41 points. Um, but one of the key things to think about when you uh, take this away is that the fact that we beat her by 16 points should be pretty normal because Trump won this state uh, by 19 points over Hillary Clinton. So that's about where a Republican should be polling. Uh, however, my closest Republican competitor, uh, we are outperforming him by nine points. So um, we're actually doing better than the GOP establishment pick in a head-to-head matchup against Claire McCaskill. How are you doing directly against him? Uh, We don't know yet. Uh, There's going to be a new primary poll coming out here pretty soon. Uh, The last time there was one that was done about two months ago, a lot has happened since then. We've had a governor's scandal that he was uh, embroiled in, and uh, we started doing advertising in the state of Missouri, and uh, there's just so many different things have happened. So we're not quite sure where we're at versus our Republican competitor, but we should know by the end of next week. I noticed something interesting. Um, am I correct to say you've already raised four times the amount of money for a senatorial campaign than you did for a presidential campaign? Five times now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, um, we hit uh, 500K uh, just yesterday, and that's pretty good. So, um, you know, you have to have uh, a good amount of money to be able to get your message out, especially when you're running uh, as a Republican, you know, in the uh, the two-party system. But um, we've managed to build a pretty sizable war chest and I've made about 40,000 personal phone calls myself. Uh, so that has a little bit to do with it. That's all? Yeah, just that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I imagine you have cauliflower ear then. Uh, yeah, well, I have a headset to help. <laughs> wow, I, I don't even know where you'd find that time. That's just incredible. You doing a lot of driving and calling and in the car and things like that? Sometimes. Uh, we've been spending a lot of time out on the road at campaign events. Um, the, the guy that I'm running against has sort of made it a habit not to show up to any Republican events around the state. Uh, and so while he's sort of been mailing it in, we've been traveling a lot and going to Lincoln Day dinners. I'm going to be at one tomorrow, actually. So showing up, uh, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, doing the typical politician stuff to win the election. We've been doing that as well. But, uh, yeah, when we're on the road, we've got a campaign bus and I will sometimes make uh, campaign calls while I'm on the bus. Well, cool. And is it fair to say that in some ways he's maybe acting like he doesn't even really want it? Well, actually, he said that as much himself uh, when they were pushing about uh, people were asking why he hasn't shown up. He's he's also burned some bridges with some uh, Republican sitting congressmen here in Missouri um, by not showing up and and not RSVPing. Um, So when they pushed him on that, Politico uh, reported that he said he didn't even want to do this. Um, because he campaigned on the promise of, as to be attorney general that he wasn't going to run for higher political office. And he broke that promise you know, six months into his first year of his first term uh, because the political pressure from people like Mitch McConnell and Karl Rove was immense. 
Um, so I, I imagine that a lot of uh, the sort of negative attitudes towards him are because he didn't keep his promise. Um, but that's where we're at. Hmm. Now, one thing I've noticed about you, because I've done a lot of research and things, um, you call yourself either a conservatarian or a, a minarchist. Um, what, where would you place yourself or how would you describe that? So it, it, in, in common parlance, uh, conservatarian it might be a little less confusing than minarchist. Minarchist is not the kind of term that gets bandied about very often. However, if you're trying to be as concise as possible about which political philosophy I espouse, I call myself a minarchist uh, because it's the closest to my philosophical beliefs or worldviews. Um, and I, I, give, I give a lot of deep thought to what I believe and why I believe it in order to, to have a coherent worldview and philosophy. Uh, I've read you know, many different books by different philosophers, and I'm a big cherry picker, <clears throat> uh, which means that um, it gets me into trouble because most people um, engage in bifurcated thinking, black or white thinking, you have to be this or you have mm -hmm. to be that. And I really don't like labels very much because there's probably uh, some things that I disagree with um, people like Robert Nozick uh, with, uh, for example. Robert Nozick was a man who wrote a book called Anarchy, State, and Utopia. And in it, he, dis he sort of lays out the groundwork for the minarchist philosophy. And there are very few of us, so I don't describe myself that in public or at events um, when I'm at a, a Republican uh, event, probably the closest to my philosophical worldview that most Republicans would be able to identify with or understand, if we're going to have to use labels, would be a constitutional conservative. Uh, but I am a constitutional minarchist, essentially, that I believe uh, that uh, we have the we as uh, a people, individuals, um, should have the power to draw up a constitution and form a government that's limited to protecting life, liberty, and property. Uh, and in that sense, I consider that constitutional uh, minarchism. Um, you know, and our, our current form, of, our constitutional form of government that we have right now has some problems. I don't agree with everything that's in the United States Constitution, specifically the 16th and the 17th Amendments. So I can cherry pick there, too. Uh, and say, I believe, um, you know, in, in these parts of the Constitution and say, I, I, I think that the 16th Amendment should be overturned or the 17th Amendment should be overturned. Um, I still consider myself a constitutional, small C constitutionalist. And I think the big C Constitution uh, could use some reforms. So in some ways, you're a small L libertarian, too. Very much so. Uh, libertarian is, uh, unfortunately, the label has got a lot of, um, it comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, but I do consider myself that. That's in, in general terms, right? It, depending on, uh, you know, the day that you ask me. Um, in, in some ways, I'm, I'm a conservative just because I live my life rather conservatively compared to maybe so many libertarians. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I think the government needs to enforce the type of uh, beliefs or worldview that I have necessarily. So, um, you know, labels can be tricky because, uh, you know, if, if you're a Republican, people assume that that means that you're for crony capitalism, which I'm not. If you're a Republican, that means they assume that means you're pro-life, which I am. Uh, so labels can be tricky, but uh, policies are, are really what I'm focused on. That's actually kind of refreshing because um, it seems like everybody is having to pass a purity test. Mm -hmm. And yeah. libertarians are as bad or worse than anyone I, uh, also, there was a really good article that came out recently that said that libertarians are as doctrinal a group of people who have no central doctrine as you can get. <laughs> yeah, that, that I think by the very nature, they can't come together as a party because of the it, it, it's almost anathema that the idea of a party means 
some sort of collectivism and by their nature, they're against that. So it's sure. Kind of, it's a contradiction. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of, there's a lot of catch 22s. Now, um, one place I think you, I've heard that you depart from them is on the uh, non-aggression principle. Um, can you go into that a little bit? Like first what it is and then how you depart. Sure. I, I'll quote the great Donald Trump and say, sounds good. Doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, um, it, it's sort of, it's, it's not that the non-aggression principle isn't good in theory. I think that in theory, you know, the idea, uh, a, a better philosophy might be the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, but there are, if, um, it depends on how you define the initiation of force. Uh, so if I don't consent to your secondhand smoke, um, what level of force am I allowed to use against your initiation of force if you blow smoke in my face, right? Uh, so there's, there's, there's some problems. As a general rule, I think it's a good uh, general rule, but the devil's always in the details. Um, you know, when I, there's Oliver Wendell Holmes had a famous quote where he said, your right to swing your fist ends at my, where my nose begins. Um, but can I point a gun at you? Uh, is that an initiation of force, right? Can I starve my child to death? That's neglect. That's not an initiation of force. Some things are uh, crimes, whether or not they involve the initiation of force or not, right? Fraud is another question, like what do we consider fraud? So there's a lot of little philosophical intricacies. However, unfortunately, because of the groupthink in libertarian circles, um, we sort of idolize this. It's, it's become sort of the golden idol. Um, and there's, you know, there's been an attempt to make it like the central thesis of libertarian philosophy, whereas my belief always was that private property rights was the uh, basis for our worldview. And I think that everything grows out of the basis of private property, because otherwise, uh, what, what would you have to aggress against? The non-aggression principle cannot exist without a solid definition of property rights, because what are you initiating force against? Private property rights, right? You have to have private property rights first. So the non-aggression principle, I think, good in theory, um, has some uh, philosophical inconsistencies that we can debate endlessly. My biggest problem, I think, is it with it is simply that people. Um, I I hate um, sacred cows, mm -hmm. uh, and so if somebody has a sacred cow, then uh, they're they're looking at something through a they're looking at it more as a religious thing. They have a faith based view on it rather than a secular uh, view on it. Right. And it's, it's less uh, utilitarianism, right? Like I, I sort of sometimes will float between ontological and deontological worldviews, but um, uh, at the end of the day, if I have to make a choice, right, I'm going to look at empiricism. I'm going to look at empirical data. I'm going to use something that is quant uh, uh, quantitative or, or verifiable, something that I can share with you so that we can arrive at the same results. And uh, oftentimes when you're looking at things through a philosophical framework, um, especially the non-aggression principle, then you're going to uh, have inconsistencies with people who have different worldviews. So I want something that is verifiable. So uh, utilitarianism is much more useful to me uh, in order to ensure that we arrive at the same conclusions, which is why private property to me is a much stronger basis because that foundational basis is something that's verifiable, quantifiable, uh, and something that we can use in order to, um, you know, advance constructively the beliefs that we that we have in freedom. And the private property would start with yourself and your labor, correct? Correct. That's correct. Yeah. Now, um, a friend of mine who's been on the show before had stated one time, I thought it was an interesting statement. And it was, quote, I've come to realize that I am federally libertarian, state, 
Republican or conservative, municipality-wise, a Democrat or liberal, neighborhood, friends and family, a socialist. Can you relate to that in any way? Perhaps. Um, I don't. I don't relate to socialism much at all because even even families are still operate on a voluntary model, um, and and even within families, like things aren't necessarily equally distributed. Um, so I, I do believe in hierarchies. Uh, I do believe that uh, hierarchies exist for a reason that they are a, a um, that they are a natural uh, outgrowth of the types of um, you know systems that humans would create if there weren't a coercive state or apparatus that was placed upon us, unnatural hierarchy, I would call that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I could in some sense, unfortunately, I don't, I think that, uh, you know, that central planning falls apart, whether it's uh, local or whether it's national. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so how do you feel now where you start going down the trap is, you know, the obvious question, how do you feel about driver's licenses? <laughs> Well, of course, if we're going to privatize all the roads, then driver's licenses will only be necessary if the private road owner desire, desires for you to be able to, to be required to carry one. Um, that being said, if, uh, if we ha- under the current system that we have, because it's publicly funded, I would like to see people uh, be able to show some semblance of uh, competence before they get in a flying, you know, before they get in a death machine and start traveling at 60 to 75 miles an hour. But, you know, I do think that that is a state issue. So perhaps the state's you know, are making, are having that kind of experiment and they can, they can experiment with that as they like. But ultimately my, uh, the reason why I had an issue with driver's licenses is because I wanted to, I always want to be skeptical about everything that government does in order to determine whether or not it can be better provided for by the private market. Um, and I think that there probably could be. So, um, you know, if something is, is, is statism, you know, whether or not I may be a, a minarchist, a minimal statist, um, you know, I still want to sort of, you know, push back, uh, on any encroach, encroachment of government, just because in some ways it's a strategy uh, to, in order to ensure that the government is always on the defense against individual liberty and that our rights and, and liberty is superior in many ways. Even if we have some encroachments, I want to ensure that um, that people are always thinking twice, even if it's something as simple as a road, a bridge, a tunnel, a highway, what have you. Okay, so you want it to earn its place versus just take it. Right. Be imposed on us. Sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Now that does start to get deep and I put out questions in a group I have to many different political um, backgrounds. So I could definitely ask you varied things. Mm-hmm. And one thing that came up was what do you think about the FDA? Yeah, I, the, the reason why I'm not for the FDA is because I think actually the private market has rating agencies for electronics um, and there's a demand for that. People desire that. If you open up your microwave, uh, there, it has a, a little symbol in there that it's been uh, scored by a pri- private ratings agency. I think that food and drugs should be uh, handled in much the same way. Um, you know, I, I don't trust the, the government as a matter of course. Um, I think we should always be skeptical of government. And I think that ratings agencies would immediately spring up in place of an FDA. I think the FDA gets in the way of innovation. Um, I was actually really pleased to see President Trump signing the Right to Try Act the other day, um, and because if you're a terminal patient, the government shouldn't be getting in the way of you, uh, you know, making a determination about what's in the best interest for your own health. So I'm not for the FDA. Uh, I think the private rating agencies would spring up and exist if there wasn't a monopoly. How do you um, answer things like um, you know, Francis Oldham, Kersey, and um, was it thalidomide? I can't even say it. Um, you know, was 
given out in Germany widely, but FDA stopped it here. And in Germany, they had, you know, very chronic problem with children. They were, you know, born with malformed limbs and dying. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the question is how much prior restraint are we going to have to place in the market to ensure that people don't die? I mean, we could make, if you're going to make that argument, you could argue, why do we allow people to own guns? Um, you know, from the legal perspective, you could say, okay, well, there's the Second Amendment, but in the absence of a legal perspective, what would be the, the underlying philosophical argument for that? And, and mine is, is, is simply that, you know, there are, there are risks. Freedom is dangerous. Um, and uh, frankly, I prefer it to the alternative, however. Okay, so you're not concerned about um, agencies running amok, pharmaceutical companies just buying into the government? Sure, sure. and they're, but they're doing that now. Uh, they're doing that under the current system. So and, and until we've seen the alternative, then we, we, we can't criticize freedom in such a way because we haven't really tried it. Okay. And how about, um, how about for those who can't help themselves? Now, you brought up children earlier, and I think you would agree that we need laws and things to protect children. You know, sure. If a yeah. child's neglected, then that, that parent's not free to neglect that child. That's correct. Children, uh, no one owns them. They own themselves as well, and, and they, they should have... Um, uh, I, I think protections in place in order to in order to determine that they have not they're not having their rights violated again minimal government um, and I do think that that children having rights need to be protected. How about the mentally ill? Yeah, it's a good question. If there if there's going to be any any form of state welfare, it should be handled on the the state and local level. Um, the, one of the things that I think uh, sort of restricts the ability for us to be able to help the mentally ill is that the uh, Food and Drug Administration, the CDC, and many of these other government agencies so frequently will get it wrong. Their science isn't necessarily the best. And because they don't have any competition in order to make determinations about mental health, uh, they'll, they'll issue a government edict about this type of, this is a mental health issue here. Uh, and then, of course, they step in and they'll do something like take away your, your gun rights without due process. Um, but when it comes to the mentally ill, I think that more people would be would be taken care of uh, if we weren't if our rate of taxation wasn't so high, because I think we would be more prosperous and we would be allowed to be more charitable. Also, there's a lot of red tape. Um, you know, I think that it, it, if you had a smaller government, families, friends, neighbors and churches would be incentivized to step up and to take care of people more. But um, but, yeah, it's it's a difficult problem. I just think that the bigger the problem is, the the smaller the government, the, low, the more local the government should be to solve it. Okay, because the um, argument has been brought up that in the 80s, that's one time the uh, Republicans and Democrats, I guess, got along because the Republicans or conservatives didn't want to pay for mental health. And the Democrats were saying they should be free. And they uh, emptied all the institutions. And a lot of the homeless problem we have now, things like that, I, mean, yeah. I, I think that's all of our problems, potentially. It could be, for sure. Um, so, unfortunately, a government is not a panacea, mm -hmm. right? It's not a bomb. for It's not a, it's not a cure-all for everything. Mental health is, is not something that I think the government's going to be able to solve. It's, it's going to be something that's going to be solved by doctors uh, and ultimately by uh, voluntary institutions like churches and by uh, associations in these communities. The problem is, of course, is that when you're a politician, say you're running for office, people don't people are unsatisfied by the answers that, well, if we had more freedom, then uh, other op opportunities would spring up because they want simple, concrete solutions. And unfortunately, for every complex for every complex problem, there's a simple solution, simple, clear, concise and wrong. Uh, unfortunately, the um, the government is not the best at solving many of these problems. 
And I don't know how to solve every single problem because I don't know how to live your life better for you than you do. I don't know how to micromanage your life. I don't know how to solve the problems of mental health. I'm not sure what piece of legislation I could introduce that would solve the problems of mental health. That's an unsatisfying answer to most of the electorate. Uh, unfortunately, it probably is the, the best answer. Um, but people, they want, uh, they want government to do something. It's like after 9-11, they wanted the government to do something. So pass the Patriot Act. Has that solved the problem of terrorism? Very unlikely. Um, after a school shooting, uh, they want the government to do something. Pass a gun restriction. Ban bump stocks. Is that going to solve the problem? Very unlikely, unfortunately. True. That makes sense. Um, now, one of the issues that I have a theory about a problem with government is that Congress has abdicated their responsibilities to the executive branch. Would you agree with that? And if so, how would you go about changing that? I think so. In some ways, they've abdicated their authority of the executive branch. And in other ways, they've, they've grabbed, they've usurped authority from the judicial branch. A perfect example of that would be uh, mandatory minimum sentencing, for example. Um, you know, the, legislature, uh, the legislators will never come into contact with criminals that on a routine basis. The judges do. Uh, and the legislature has taken away the power from the judicial branch and, and given themselves the authority to uh, determine sentencing in cases which they have no interest in the outcome. Uh, but when it comes to their role versus the executive branch, well, there's there's a very simple reason, I think, why um, Congress has abdicated much of their war-making authority to the president. It's because they don't want to have to take responsibility if something goes wrong. Foreign policy is a very difficult subject, very convoluted. Uh, and there's always going to be two, sometimes seven, sometimes 14, sometimes 150 different sides to a conflict involving foreign policy. And so if Congress doesn't have to um, uh, put their name on something, if they don't have to take a vote on something, then they don't have to deal with the reper repercussions after and they can they can do what their primary job is, unfortunately, in this uh, in the sort of uh, government we have, which is to get reelected. Hmm. Um, so, so they give it to the executive because the executive will be there four to eight years uh, and he can take all the heat and he'll be gone soon anyway. And then they can focus on important things like steroids and baseball. Right. Of course. Yeah. So how do you propose to change that going in as a freshman senator? Uh, well, I will, I will um, use my power of the, uh, of the pulpit uh, and my seat to ensure that the uh, Congress is properly issuing war making authority before we get involved in Congress. I'll, you know, I'll work with the president and say, you know, whether or not I think something is in our uh, country's national security interests or not. Um, I'll be willing to say no if I think something is not in our national security interests or in our national interests. So um, having that sort of authority, I would I would exert my authority, either uh, asking my fellow congressmen to uh, to vote yes, up or down on before we take military action or going to the president himself and offering my advice on what I think is in the best interest of the citizens of Missouri and the people of the United States. Now, you've mentioned establishment candidate that you're running against, which automatically and you mentioned Mitch, um, Mitch O'Connell or am I saying that right? Sorry. And mm -hmm. Correct. How how do you balance the uh, status Republicans with the your libertarian bent? It's just a good question. I think a lot of it has to do with how you approach people. Um, uh, that's that's more psychology than it is anything else. It's it's not quite so much about your policy positions as much as it is a politics is a personal skill, uh, person to person. And the number one thing that I always recommend to people or like who are libertarian or libertarian leaning. Um, when, when they get into politics is to say that you need to be a good listener. 
So the first thing that I want to do is ask them questions, learn about them. What are the issues that they care about? Uh, and then once you know what the issues are that they care about the most, then you can focus and hone in on those issues and you can offer your opinions. I haven't changed my positions running for office uh, about who I am or what I believe. Um, I'm willing to change my positions if evidence comes along to the contrary to prove me wrong, because you should be willing to do that. You should be you should have an open mind. However, there are some universal truths, some universal economic truths, some universal moral truths, and some things that I that uh, I've not been able to find any evidence that, to counter to be counterfactual to them. Um, so, when it comes to how you can swing people's opinions or swing people's votes, first thing you have to do is ask them questions, be a good listener, find out what the issues are that they care about, and then hone in on those. Do you already have some uh, alliances um, built and ready for you? Uh, what do you mean? What kind of alliances? With other senators, have you been communicating with them already and, and discussing how you might be able to get together or different ideas and just generally swapping ideas? Yeah, a little bit to a certain extent. Um, it, it's very difficult in election year to get their ears when everyone else is doing the exact same thing. But I have had some back and forth with some current congressmen and senators. Excellent. Now, one thing you brought up in the past that I really, really liked, and I'd love if you could elucidate it, is that states have powers, not rights. Sure. Very good question. So um, one, of the th- one of the terms in common parlance is the, the concept of states' rights. People look at states' rights as something, uh, as, as a facet of federalism, um, the decentralization. But when you think about a state, a state is uh, amorphous. A state is something that is a, um, that, that is, that could be transitory, right? They, for all we know, one day, um, California could split into two states, uh, the state of Jefferson to the north and the state of California to the south. Right? That could be, so, so the state of California now could be different in a different place, um, you know, 10, 20, 50 years from now, for all we know. Uh, so I think that it's, it's sort of illogical to assume that a state would have a right. A right is a guarantee. A state has a power, and it, a, a power is something that is expressly enumerated, something that is granted to it uh, in our Constitution. And this is a theory about uh, legal positivism. The concept of, of, of rights is something that can only be ascribed to individuals, only be ascribed to humans, uh, because a right is a guarantee, something that cannot be taken away without, a, without due process. How do you give a state due process? Essentially, um, there there really isn't um, isn't a concept for it that that makes sense to me in any legal or philosophical theories that I've read. So to grant a power, a power is something that can be taken away. Uh, we can take away the power of the federal government to lay an income tax. We can take away the power of the federal government to uh, directly elect to have direct elections of senators, like the sixth, the seventeenth amendment, for example. Those are powers. That, that we've granted, and those powers can be taken away. A right is something that, once issued, cannot be taken away without due process. So I like, in order to remind people that um, power is limited, uh, then I, I say states have powers, uh, not rights. Um, that way I think people put the state or the government in, their, in its rightful place um, as the servant of the people, not something which, which we must acquiesce to, uh, but something that must acquiesce to us in our rights. And do you feel like we've gone too far down the uh, government path to come back? Or can America... If I well, if I did, I wouldn't be running for office. So I guess I would say no. Okay, well, there's that. I, I will say that driving through D.C., I know I'm supposed to be impressed by the structures, but I actually was quite disturbed because I feel like 
GC produces nothing. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, actually, there's a, a statue in Washington, D.C. that the most offensive statue to me in the District of Columbia is the one outside the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and the Federal Trade Commission has a, a statue that shows a man uh, restraining a horse and the horse is, is laden with goods, with commodities. And it's supposed to symbolize the restraint of trade, the restriction of free trade, which is anathema to everything that we believe as, as you know, conservatarians, libertarians, conservatives, true conservatives. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely sympathize with you because when I walk around, many of those, many, many of the people who walk through that don't understand the symbology and how, um, how it's antithetical to freedom. Uh, but there are quite a few memorials and statues there that are completely contrary to the values that the government itself was founded on. Now, I have a curiosity, and um, I, I mean this with the highest praise. You are probably one of the most well-spoken um, people politically that I know. I mean, you've obviously read in depth, but I don't believe that was your degree in school. <laughs> uh, no, um, thank you. But um, I was a, a musical theater major. You know what's really funny when you say that? It's just some, a realization that I've come to recently um, is that uh, philosophy and the arts and politics did not used to always be so separate. It's It's unfortunate that in modern society that we look at um, the arts as something that is entirely separate from political science. Mm -hmm. But if you look at any of the ancient philosophers, um, you know, uh, uh, Plato and Aristotle and, and, and uh, Democritus and, and Sophocles and, and many others, uh, they were many of them were playwrights. Uh, many of the ancient philosophers would, would do sort of what Ayn Rand did and, and they would dramatize their uh, philosophies in order to spread it to a wide audience, right? They were the original propagandists of their day, uh, what have you. But um, yeah, I think that uh, for me, just personally, I'm always, I've always been a voracious reader. Um, I, I just incessantly reading, reading, reading. And I've always been interested in politics because if, if you don't get involved with politics, politics is, will be involved with you. And of course, if, you know, the price of not being involved is being governed by your inferiors. Uh, so I, I chafe sometimes at, at the fact that our leadership are people like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, and others who, who don't seem to me to be the sort of um, philosopher monks or the uh, statesmen and women that I would appreciate being governed by if I am to be governed under this system, which I imagine I will be until the day that I die. Uh, but I, um, I, I, I sort of, uh, I, I sort of I weep for my country uh, because we have so compartmentalized our uh, beliefs and our and and um, we have so compartmentalized political science to us to the extent that now the only type of people who hold any roles in government are lawyers uh, mm -hmm. or, or political science majors, uh, and so we have the type of system of positive law that our our country is now it's now based in. And lawyers, of course, can can do something like take Obamacare, for example, and say uh, or, or the, the Supreme famous Supreme Court decision that codified Obamacare or made it legal, at least according to the Supreme recent Supreme Court decision uh, that uh, one can be taxed or they call it a fine. One can be fined for not engaging in an activity. Right. The interstate commerce clause mm -hmm. has been turned on its head in such a way that uh, you can be fined for not purchasing insurance because by not purchasing insurance, you're affecting interstate commerce, right? It's like the old Wickard v. Filburn Supreme Court case that did this. 
where the farmer was growing wheat on his land for his own family and for his livestock. And by not selling the wheat, he was impacting uh, interstate commerce. So only lawyers could turn that kind of a plain language on its head. Um, and so in terms of my, my constitutional theory, I consider myself a textualist, right? That, that, that the law should be interpreted on the plain language, the plain reading of the words. I think original intent uh, ha has always been problematic because how can you possibly know what was in the head of someone who wrote a document 275 years ago? A textualist um, understanding of the Constitution is one where we should interpret it based on the plain meaning or language of the words. And I think that in, that's probably going to be our best strategy going forward. But a lawyer is someone who is going to take not the plain the plain language of it. They're going to they're going to go for an original intent, perhaps, or they're going to go for whatever it is that suits them the best, or their personal agenda, or advance their personal um, interests the most. So uh, this is sort of a roundabout way of saying that um, you know I, I do think that having a creative background, being an outside of the box thinker, is something that's helped me in politics. Uh, being able to uh, clearly communicate what it is that I believe into general audiences. And, and I get chastised by uh, libertarians, especially because we're such eggheads mm. for dumbing down, dumbing down our philosophy or dumbing down our principles. Um, but every, every, every revolution needs a Thomas Paine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, the, the French Revolution uh, had their uh, Jean-Paul Marat, I believe, mm -hmm. was the the the, uh, the man who was the propagandist for the French Revolution, uh, what have you. Uh, but we we have too many engineers, and we don't have enough salesmen on our team. Or women. We have well that too. Um, it's, <laughs> but but that's because again because we're we're eggheads, right? We're engineers. We look at problems through an engineering uh, protocol, but we don't have enough salesmen and we hate our salesmen and we destroy our salesmen and we rip them apart and we delegitimize them uh, unless, of course, they happen to conform to your particular worldview uh, in your sect of libertarianism, which there are about 11 to 12 main schools of libertarianism. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, because of our engineering mindset, we, we can't take these great ideas and sell them to the, to the public because we don't like salesmen. Uh, and we sort of try and drive them out because they, they reek too much of the type of, you know, politician, the kind of smarmy, smug politicians that we're used to. Mm -hmm. uh, so un unfortunately, I think that that's going to be a problem from now until until we can accept that we need uh, better marketers, better communicators. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to be for us. Um, so that's where we're at. You try to add a little empathy to the uh, formula. Right. Speaking of um, empathy and thoughts on that, we have a, a giant welfare state right now. I think you'd agree. What are your thoughts on um, the UBI and possibly as a welfare replacement? Uh, well, it's, so there's theory and then there's practicality. For practical, for practical reasons, I mean, in theory, it sounds like a, a better plan. Practically, I think it probably won't work because it, it still it does the same thing that welfare does, and it just disincentivizes people from working. Actually, there was a, a Nordic or Scandinavian country recently that just got rid of their universal Finland. Finland, yes, just got rid of it, um, and that was like in the last three weeks um, because they didn't like the experiment and it disincent disincentivized people from seeking out meaningful employment. Um, so it does the same thing that welfare does that I don't like, and uh, and it taxes me, which I don't like. Um, but in theory, yeah, sure. It sounds great. It's sort of like the, uh, the national sales tax, 
Does a national sales tax in theory sound like a better idea than an income tax? Sure, it, but it does have some major problems. And then, of course, in application, um, what is the federal government going to do? Is it going to get rid of the income tax and, repla- and replace it with another? No, they're going to add that tax on top of it. And the precedent, ha- we don't want to create a set of precedent for a national sales tax. I don't want to set a precedent for a universal basic income because at its base, I reject the, um, the taxation that's being used to distribute to, to um, what do you call it, um, uh, for the redistribution of wealth. And I reject the, the negative incentive that it creates on seeking gainful employment. Okay. And, um, how about um, immigration? You've talked about Ellis Island system. Could you lay that out a little bit more and explain what you mean? Sure. The reason why I like the Ellis Island cell system is because it, it, for the most part, lacks quotas. Um, one of the problems that we had during World War II or pre-World War II was that we had quotas on the number of Jewish immigrants that could come over, and many of them were, see, were, were fleeing uh, the rise of fascism in Europe, uh, and more people's lives could have been saved. As a matter of fact, I think Anne Frank, I believe her parents tried to come to the United States, but they were rejected because of the quotas that we had. Maybe Anne Frank wouldn't have died if we uh, had had a better uh, immigration policy. I think quotas are, are a wrong, the wrong way to, way to go. Um, but if uh, if you want to come to the United States, you don't have a right to come to the United States if you uh, intend to commit acts of terror. You don't have an, a right to come to the United States if you will distribute an infectious disease. Uh, so there does need to be a security check. There does need to be a disease check. Um, but if I think that if we had the right incentives in place, if we didn't have a welfare state, uh, if there was a, a simple, clear system that wouldn't take 15 to 25 years for you to go through the naturalization process, then I think people would be incentivized to do the right thing. I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect system. I'm just looking for a better system at this point. Um, utopia literally defined means no place. Uh, you'll always have problems of people who will come here for the wrong reasons, even if you have the right incentives in place. And for that, you do need national security. Uh, but I think the Ellis Island system, I like to point to it as an example of something that is a much better direction than where we're going right now, which is protectionism, which is I think is an, anti, a, an unfair anti-immigrant bias. Um, but I think people, people who are uh, becoming protectionists uh, when it comes to immigration are looking at the European welfare states and the experiment that they've tried with welfare states and open borders, and they are rightfully upset or rightfully nervous about following that model. Absolutely. Um, But the massive draw is the welfare state, right, Mm -hmm. if you're incentivized properly. If they they came there because they were fleeing a war-torn country, uh, well, maybe you shouldn't have got – we shouldn't be bombing their countries anyway, but let's put that aside – and just say that um, if you if they had to come to a, another country and that country didn't offer welfare incentives for them, then you know the churches would step up and do the charity that was necessary. But they could cut it off if it got to a certain point where it was you know obvious that the person was 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 taking advantage. But they would have to contribute to the economy, or they'd have to go back. They'd have to go somewhere else. So so deportations would naturally occur, and we wouldn't have to round up the police force and tax other Americans in order to ensure our security because supply and demand would dictate it. Uh, Unfortunately, people who believe in supply and demand for the commodity market don't see how supply and demand also works in the labor market. And now we have a booming economy, but we have a labor shortage. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, it's unfortunate that um, people are, you know, for the most part, and I I say this not to be unkind, but economically illiterate. uh, And that has a lot to do with our, our poor education system in the United States. I agree with that. Um, and that what you're describing, I think Milton Friedman was very concerned about that 
if you didn't have a welfare state, immigration is no longer a problem. Exactly. Exactly. Um, let's see. So you really, you feel that your main issue is government spending. I think you've said before, is that a fair, right. fair statement? With that, government spending is government. Uh, without without a, the ability to spend, government can't act. Makes sense. Do you think that um, the 2008 financial crisis occurred due to regulation failures, or should the government step in when companies get too big? No, I think that the I think that the 2008 crisis uh, occurred because of the negative uh, financial incentives that were created by lax monetary policy through the Federal Reserve and the legislation such as the CRA, Community Reinvestment Act, that encouraged uh, banks and lenders to lend to people with poor credit ratings. So uh, if if uh, if you're a bank or if you're a, if you're a lender um, and you're being incentivized by um, you know the central bank or the, by legislation to give money to people who uh, have less than sterling credit because you're getting a kickback or what have you, then you're going to create a bubble. You're going to have a problem. So the Federal Reserve, loose monetary policy and bad legislation are what led to the 2008 financial crisis, not deregulation. It was anything but. And I'm going to guess that you don't believe in bailouts. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> I don't believe in welfare. I don't believe in welfare in general. I definitely don't believe in welfare to corporations. So no. Okay. I, I, I feel like corporatism is a really giant problem with your potential peers too. Of course. And, and uh, you know, when, in terms of practicality, theory versus reality, I don't believe in corporate welfare any more than I believe in general welfare. Um, but I think that, um, you know, if the biggest problem is corporate welfare, if we're going to attack something first, we shouldn't go after grandma. We should be going after the corporations. If I had to choose either or, because we're essentially it's, it's welfare for the rich. And so I think that we should be attacking these subsidy programs, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the farm bills and things like that, which are not are, are sold to us. The bill of goods is that, you know, they're there to help the small family farms. But small family farmers only get a tiny fraction of what the major corporate farmers, because they have the ability to lobby and to be able to get more funds. Yeah, I, I guess I have a kind of off kilter view. I feel like Wall Street is um, really a, a Ponzi scheme. The companies do have value, but if you look at it, people who get in early, get all the money. People who come in late usually pay the price. And that's right. Most companies fail. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Now, I guess um, one main question I have is you've run for president and you're running for senator. The jobs are different. How do you feel in the senatorial role you can affect the changes versus what you would do as president? Well, of course, the president has the power of the veto and the senator has the power of the filibuster. So just knowing the, uh, the different approaches, the, the, the different powers of these government roles um, I would use legislation or uh, I would introduce legislation uh, to like decentralize the monetary unit, for example, um, you know, introduce competition to the Federal Reserve by reforming our currency laws. Uh, you can hold hearings on Capitol Hill. You can just uh, you can uh, uh, or at least you can suggest uh, federal judges for important judgeship positions, including the, uh, up to the Supreme Court. Uh, so I do have some some people in mind that I would like to appoint to some of these roles. And um, I'd also like to be in, involved in our foreign policy, our trade negotiations. 
um, in diplomacy in order to ensure that we have more peace, prosperity, peace and prosperity for the people of the United States. So I take a legislative approach to my free market principles, to my limited government principles, rather than an executive approach. Uh, and I think I'd be a damn good senator. Um, if, if not any, if anything, just because I'd probably be uh, a lone wolf in many ways, you know, fighting for um, the the types of minarchist constitutional minarchist beliefs that I hold. Um, and and I do I I, I have to uh, unfortunately I have to let you go. Um, I've, I've got another interview here in just a couple of minutes that okay. I have to get ready for. But I do appreciate you having me on your show today. Well, thank you much. And where can people find you, Austin? Yeah, you can find me at austinforsenate.com. That's A-U-S-T-I-N for the number four, austinforsenate.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ap for liberty Well, thank you very much. We'll all look out for you. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, everyone. Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again.